Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, episode 56. I'm Tina Duyeb and I'm sitting here dressed in my nuclear hazmat suit, gas mask and lead-lined pants. But as well as my casual everyday wear, I've also got a colander on my head and a tin of chopped tomatoes due to the renewed possibility of nuclear war. No, I don't have a can opener. You're absolutely right, I really haven't thought this through at all. Uh, I'm much less Bear grills when it comes to survival and much more Wombat Toaster Oven. Yes, in what happens when presidential bad hair days collide, the US has said that its era of patience with North Korea is over. And I don't think that's just because, like their healthcare system, they don't see patients, they see customers. The aggressive stance on North Korea came just days after President of America and man, who looks like he's barely survived a nuclear fallout already, Donald Trump, ordered an airstrike in Syria and is following bombing of an ISIS complex in Afghanistan. The mother of all bombs killed around 90 ISIS militants in Afghanistan and no wonder she was angry enough to do that as under Trump's current proposals, new mums will get under three weeks maternity leave. Tiny baby and back to work so soon? Yeah, I'd want to take out about 100 people as well. So after those two attacks, Trump has turned his narrow, narrow sights towards North Korean supreme leader and what happens when you animate a burger, Kim Jong-un. Yes, he is also a dictator who comes from wealth, has ridiculous locks of hair, won't stand for anyone mocking him and has to have constant rallies to assure himself his own popularity. There is almost certainly a parallel universe somewhere where these two, Trump and Kim Jong-un, are tip-swapping lovers because it's the closest thing they'd get to both's true dream of having sex with themselves. Kim Jong-un has of course warned that a big event is near and speculation that this is a new nuclear missile test rather than, you know, a nationwide screening of the Channel 4 version of British Bake Off has rattled the US government. And US intelligence says that they will launch a preemptive strike if they think North Korea will go through with its nuclear weapons tests, even though North Korea say that they'll do this every year, uh, don't really have the capabilities to reach the US and once claimed to put a man on the sun, so really, why does anyone pay any attention to what they say? Yeah, you're right, Trump is probably angrily having meetings in Mar-a-Lago now to see when he too can go to the sun, despite his face looking like he's been there for years. The bigger worry than North Korea right now is that the US has a president who's realised that he gets pretty good press every time he bombs the absolute shit out of somewhere which he can authorise at a drop of a penny. So really, everyone needs to stop praising him for dropping bombs, and really, they should all start congratulating him on, you know, eating an awful lot of salt or not getting health checks, and then we should all be fine. 
Speaking of terrifying dictators, President of Turkey and man who protested too much about a German comedian's poem that suggested he fucked goats, Recep Erdogan, has won a referendum giving him sweeping new powers. No, that doesn't mean he gets to use some sort of technologically advanced broom when cleaning the kitchen. It means Parliament may now be scrapped with Erdogan holding an executive presidency over Turkey and basically having one-man rule over the country, which he seems keen to follow up by being president till at least 2029 and bringing back the death penalty. Yeah, it really makes the Brexit vote pale in comparison, eh? I mean, if our referendum had the options of remain or leave, but we'll kill your mate that hasn't got his car tax sorted on time, it might have been a very different outcome. Still, it's not a clear win for Erdogan, as the vote was 51% in favour of an executive presidency and 49 against, and his opponents are now demanding a recount due to lots of reports of voter fraud. Yes, it seems Erdogan may have asked people for their say on having less of a say, and then ignored their say to get the say he likes anyway. Well, I'm glad someone like that doesn't have singular rule of a country that's essentially the border between Europe, Asia and the Middle East. Whew! Well, at least they don't have their own nukes, only a base that the US store nukes on. Sorry? Who, who stores them there? The US? Oh, oh dear. Meanwhile, on home shores, Prime Minister and woman who, if she took a personality test, it wouldn't register she was there in the first place, Theresa May, made her first Easter message as Prime Minister, which was appropriately eggy. She said there is now a sense of people coming together, which would suggest people are enjoying this period of getting shafted and that there will actually be some sort of enjoyable climax together rather than a disappointing inability to get going, nothing to ensure anyone really benefits at all, and all of it followed by years and years in a terrible wet patch. Oh, and Education Secretary and rejected Jessica Hines' character, Justine Greening, pushed forward the government's drive for an increase in selective educational facilities by saying how new grammar schools would be open to all, which sort of ruins the entire point of grammar schools. Someone should really tell her about comprehensive schools. It would totally blow her mind. So, I hope you're all out of your chocolate egg-based comas and feel ready to cope with the now stressful prospect of a whole one and a half weeks without a bank holiday long weekend in sight. I mean, how are you going to cope with that? I spent some of my Easter weekend at my cousin's very lovely wedding uh, where, where, get this, they had tiny jacket potatoes, like really small ones, which was really exciting. I mean, if they're tiny jacket potatoes, does that make them petticoat potatoes? Blouse potatoes? So many questions and no real answers. You know, a lot like life. Uh, also, uh, I should plug this really just because it's great, but uh, I watched a film called Tickling Giants, which is now on Netflix. And it's a really amazing documentary about Basad Youssef, the uh, Egyptian John Stewart, as they call him, and his fight to keep satirising the Egyptian regime despite all the threats against him. It's a really powerful and very, very funny film that not only helped me learn a lot about the current Egyptian political situation, but it also made me really realise I have to step up my podcast game as I haven't been forced to flee in exile due to these sweet gags yet. I must try harder and how was listening to last week's podcast with adverts in it uh, did any of you have any i don't mean you know the subliminal ones that i put in amongst various sentences anyway give me all your money i mean the ones uh, inserted in this show you know now that we've joined the excellent a cast give me your money and buy me a sandwich i'd love to know your thoughts uh, about it and once i get the hang of it um, and work out where the adverts kind of go i may even put in a special advert jingle so you know when they're coming uh, also apologies if your listening device got all confused and redownload the first 10 episodes of this show again. I'm not really sorry. It was due to me not having a clue uh, what I was doing as everything got transferred over to new servers and I don't really know what any of that means. Maybe on the plus side, some of you listened back to them anyway uh, and learnt just how bad my editing skills were then. I mean, I know, you thought they were terrible now and I was even worse at interviewing then, which is saying quite a lot. Um, And, you know, it probably helped you to remember also what things were like in early 2016 pre-Brexit Trump or me discovering Tiny Jacket Potatoes world. 
world. Wow, such different times. I mean, these potatoes were life-changing. A um, couple of quick things before we get on with this week's show. Uh, firstly, a big, big thanks to Daniel um, who sponsored the podcast via our Kofi site uh, last week and that's ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro. Um, that's very, very lovely of him and you can do that as well if you like or if you wish uh, to give me a more monthly donation then you can head to patreon.com forward slash parpolbro where I have promised to add more bonus stuff and then I forgot to add more bonus stuff because, well, tiny jacket potatoes. But... I don't have any more of those tiny jacket potatoes, so I will do that this week. Um, also, if you join, you will get the extra stuff that I loaded up two weeks ago as well, and you can listen to that while eating tiny jacket potatoes. Tiny jacket potatoes. Ah, oh, tiny jacket potatoes. Um, also, if you don't want to give me any dosh at all, or you exist in a sort of medieval money-free trading society, then please do head to iTunes uh, or Stitcher and give the show a review. That helps almost as much. I mean, I can't pay bills with a review but I can at least smile while I'm starving um, and preferably give me a five star one as well and a couple of people give me four stars and it's like what do I have to do mate well I, d- I don't really see the point in not doing a five star review and I should say that really I think the whole star reviewing system is arbitrary anyway isn't it because you know if I was to give one of you an actual star just one of them that'd be a pretty amazing gift I mean, the fact that we don't think anything's worth it unless it's been handed five giant luminous spheres of plasma is pretty ridiculous. But now that I've pointed out how stupid and meaningless the review process is, please, please, please give the show five stars because I too am stupid and meaningless. And I always forget to add uh, to all of the uh, other blurb and regular weekly please give me money nonsense, um, don't forget to subscribe as well. Um, I sort of never say that because I'm not sure why you wouldn't subscribe anyways. It stops you having to click every week on the podcast and provider of your choice, typing in this show's name and then downloading it when it could just arrive in your phone, MP3 player or specially designed digital ear horn, you know. But uh, if you haven't uh, done that, then please do, especially as subscribing is free and not like one of those ancient magazines where the first part was free but then to get the full set of porcelain dinner ladies you had to pay 15 quid an issue for the next year so anyway please donate review and subscribe oh wow that was a much quicker way to say it wasn't it i should just see that next time donate review and subscribe that's ugh, what am i like um Right, on the live front, I don't know if any of you like seeing stuff in the real world with your own eyes. Um, Because weirdly, I'm not just a voice. I've got a whole face and a body. It's bizarre. Um, But next Saturday, which is the 22nd of April, uh, so if you listen to this on a Sunday, it was last Saturday. Uh, Idiots. Um, But I'm doing a set at the evening part of the Taking Back Control youth event in Shoreditch in London, which is a brilliant festival of ideas, panels and action for people aged 16 to 30 um, for whatever your political stance is on life, really. Um, It covers all areas and it's all focused on how young people are basically taking a brunt of a lot of the changes in politics and the fallout from Brexit. So if you're interested in that, tickets are free and it starts at 11am on the Saturday with excellent speakers uh, such as previous podcast guest Abby Wilkinson, uh, anthropologist David Graeber and the ever brilliant writer Rennie Edo Lodge who is amazing um, I'm also on at some point after 6pm when everyone stops saying sensible things I'm doing like a 30 minute comedy set um, and you can grab a ticket from takebackcontrol.com forward slash youth or not if you listen to the show on a Sunday or do if you do listen to the show on a Sunday but you're a time lord uh, also in London on the 23rd of April as in the 
next day after that so that's next Sunday or the Sunday you're listening to this on um, I'm previewing my new Edinburgh show at the Good Ship in Kilburn in London at 4pm as part of a day of previews which are all free as well and I wonder why I struggle to pay my rent and keep having to put subliminal messages into my podcast to give me money give me money um, the following weekend I'm going to be previewing my new show at McCunliffe Comedy Festival on April the 29th in deepest Wales and that's at 12.30 um, so that's midday 12.30 not midnight 12.30 because uh, by that point I will be asleep slash drunk um, to be fair 12.30 midday may also be asleep slash drunk but you know you can come and watch that if you come to it at that time uh, so if you're going to come to McCunliffe Comedy Festival which you should do anyway because it's amazing please come along to that show and that show isn't free because sometimes I like eating especially tiny jacket potatoes uh, right this week's show, episode 56, I am talking to Naomi Hurst at Global Witness uh, about the corrupt money from terrible regimes that hides in the UK's property market and banking systems. Um, I'm going to be looking more at the US-North Korea scrap, and there's a teeny tiny little bit of Brexit fallout. Oh, and also probably the worst jingle I've ever made, but one that I'm extremely proud of. Uh, but before all of that, have some of this. Grammar schools aren't, as you might think, the place that your mum or dad's mum was educated. Uh, you know, as opposed to grandpa schools. Instead, they are state-paid for schools that selectively choose which pupils they think are suitable to be educated there, often by entry exam, but sometimes also their vicinity to the school, their religion, if they have brothers or sisters there, or if they have enough money to afford private tutoring that helps them smash 11-plus exams. OK, so the last one isn't really a criteria, but even the government's own studies have shown that over 50% of pupils currently at grammar schools are from families with above-average incomes. And while a third were from families with below-average incomes, they weren't low enough to be eligible for free school meals. Since Theresa May became Prime Minister, she and Education Secretary Justine Greening have been pushing to allocate lots of education money for the expansion of new grammar schools that are apparently for ordinary working families. I mean, I hate that phrase. Families don't work. You don't have working families. It's usually just the parents, isn't it? Is this a subtle way of the government saying that if your child isn't rich enough to go to grammar school, then they'll be catered for by the re-establishment of child labour? The Ordinary Working Families target group appears to not include anyone who lives in a family without one parent earning the median income of £20,000 or more, right? That sounds about sensible. But the method used by officials to actually determine this adjusts it for size of household. So an ordinary household could be one with one parent earning up to £33,000 a year instead. And it doesn't include self-employed income or location and generally doesn't really know what an ordinary working family is. Or if it doesn't include your auntie or your pets, are they now no longer family? And if so, how does that work when it gets to Christmas card etiquette? So it all seems a bit dodgy so far and still seems to largely exclude children from lower income families. And sure, grammar schools do get good results, but then arguably, so would many struggling comprehensive schools, you know, if they were given the money that is probably now going to be allocated to discriminating grammar schools. I've seen loads of opinion pieces or comments from people saying, oh, grammar schools are great because I went to one and it was great, or, oh, state schools are shit because I went to one and it was shit, seemingly forgetting that, you know, the entire world doesn't imitate the exact same experiences that you have. You know, if you were allergic to wheat and I told you, well, I've had a sandwich and it was fine, I wouldn't expect it to work out the same for you and shove it in your gob. So, other than ideology to just help continuing to send Britain back to the good old days where, you know, rich children were well-educated and the rest lived in workhouses begging for seconds, it doesn't really make sense why the government are pushing for this. The National Union of Teachers are looking into legal action against the grammar school expansion and with so many critics of this plan, it's looking more and more like Justine Greening is the one who's going to get schooled. 
According to the Comres poll in the Sunday Mirror and the Independent, the Conservatives are currently 21 points ahead of Labour in popularity, amongst those few members, you know, of the British public that were actually in during the day and answered their phone. I mean, I'm not saying that polls aren't an indicator of general public opinion, but really, who does that? I mean, who's in, in the day, and then answers their phone to a stranger? I mean, nine times out of ten, it's probably going to be a, hey, we're calling about the accident you had phone call, which usually causes me to say, it's just happened, I'm trapped, please help, and then make various groaning pain noises until they hang up. But yeah, I'm wary of polls at the best of times, and recent referendums and elections have proved that anyone who's around to watch homes under the hammer isn't the best voice of the people. Saying that, Labour have continuously been below the Conservatives, since the man who looks like he travels around schools to tell them about the importance of harvest, Jeremy Corbyn, became Labour leader. And it takes a real effort to be less popular than a government who are willingly making everyone's lives harder. Although I suppose, as British people, we do like a good old moan, and what would we complain about if everything was great, eh? But another poll by Opinion this week showed that there is a lot of backing for the policies that Corbyn and Labour have unveiled in the last two weeks, with little change as to whether people were told whether they were the opposition parties or its leaders' ideas. Which is not bad, as back in October of last year, 87% of people backed Labour policies, but not if they were told that they were Labour policies. Because, you know, that's where the UK public was then, hoping that some magical new party would fly in with a series of great policies and high levels of competency while twirling Brexit delicately between their fingers like a shit-covered drumstick. But none of that happened and instead Tim Farron just kept popping above the parapet to remind us why he should fuck off again. So in these recent polls, 71% of people asked backed a £10 an hour minimum wage by 2020. More than half supported Labour's free meals for all primary schools policy and over 60% backed raising the top rate of tax back to 50%. And these are only a few of Labour's policy blitz that they've announced in the last couple of weeks. They also had a policy to use £350 billion of government money to open a sort of national government-owned bank, and that wasn't a particular favourite, but I guess maybe that's because many are wary of big costs like that without a full explanation, unless, you know, it's an era-changing one. But otherwise, it seems like Labour are saying what the people want with policies that appear to target both low-income and middle-earning people. But is it enough to make people vote for Jezza when they're probably concerned that he hasn't really thought those policies through, or will he ask Ken Livingstone to be in charge of the triple up pension and he ends up calling it the triple Hitler pension or something like that? Well, looking at other well-known people that have been unpopular and then managed to crawl their way back into popularity, you know, uh, like Jade Goody, David Beckham, Cheryl Cole, Alfred Nobel, or Princess Diana, then all Corbyn has to do to get back in with the people is score a free kick against Greece, marry a footballer, start a Global Peace Award, or uh, die fairly soon. So not great options, and while the peace award seems easiest, uh, he can't even really handle the fighting in his own party, so it's not looking great, is it? Still, at least we all have things to complain about, eh? So that should make Britain happy. Shadow Home Secretary Diana but said Labour would be polling in single digits if it had a different leader. Sure, but then if their leader was Theresa May, but with Labour's policies, there's every chance they'd be smashing it, according to people who like bargain hunt. Which does make sense to be fair, as they love easy-to-follow, vacuous narratives led by one-dimensional narrators, but at the end of the day still want everything as cheap as chips. In fact, when you take into account that previous bargain hunt host David Dickinson was bright orange, maybe their viewers dictate US election results as well. Ugh, dangerous daytime bastards. In the last couple of years, several big events have showed the scale of money laundering in the UK. One was when I accidentally left my pay from a gig in my jeans pocket when I put it into a 30 degree spin, but that one really wasn't that important. 
The others, which were, were the Panama Papers leak of 11.5 million documents of financial and attorney-client info belonging to Mossack Fonseca on the tax avoidance haven that is Panama. And they revealed loads and loads of details about shell corporations and who certain properties or companies were actually owned by, leading journalists to discover that many were used for tax evasion, fraud and sanction dodging. It also led to everyone finding out that our Prime Minister at the time, David Swollen Ham Cameron, had benefited from his dad's completely untaxed offshore investment fund, which David denied a lot and then admitted and then said he wouldn't do it again. If only he'd stuck around post-Brexit, eh? He'd have realised that he could have appeared on television with all the proof of it behind him, said he still didn't benefit from it and then would have gotten away with it without further questioning. The other event was the Anti-Corruption Summit held in May last year, which was hosted, without intended irony, by David Cameron just a few weeks after the Panama Papers fiasco and only a couple of days after he was caught on a camera microphone saying Nigeria and Afghanistan were fantastically corrupt, which we still don't know if it was a compliment or an insult. But the event was to promote transparency and tackle corrupt money entering banking systems, abiding by three global policies as set up by the G8 in 2013. And the only country who failed to meet any of the standards at all? That's right, the UK, the country who hosted the summit. We may as well hold a global safe cooking summit hosted by John Tarode on a motorbike while he plunges his arms into a blender. So, a year on, what has changed? Are we more transparent as a nation? And how bad is the problem of corruption in the first place? And aren't window cleaners the only business who really need to work with full transparency? Well, to answer some of those questions, this week I spoke to Naomi Hurst at Global Witness, a campaign group who fights to end corruption in the global political and economic system. They've just been involved last week with a brilliant story uh, where they found exposing emails that revealed that Shell Oil were knowingly involved with a huge bribery scheme concerning a large oil block in Africa and depriving the Nigerian people of $1.1 billion. The campaign Naomi is currently working on is called No Safe Haven and it's asking Western governments to stop letting corrupt regimes or individuals keep their stolen assets in the West. Naomi explained to me just how widespread this issue is and I hope you find this as absolutely fascinating as I did. Here's Naomi. So hi Naomi and thank you very much for chatting with me today. Um, I wanted to ask you really, it's been... uh, a year since the Panama Papers have come out. Uh, Last May, uh, David Cameron, who was then Prime Minister, hosted a big anti-corruption summit, promising that the UK would tackle corruption in the property market um, and uh, deal with money from corrupt regimes being kept in UK bank accounts. How are we doing in the UK with clamping down on this? Where are we at? Well, yeah, thanks thanks very much for having me. Um, Well, since the summit, um, it's kind of been a bit of a mixed bag. Um, Actually, at the moment, um, the government under Theresa May has tabled a new piece of legislation. It's called the Criminal Finances Bill. Um, And it's just going through the House of Lords at the moment and and should be washed up and passed into law uh, in in the coming months. The main thing we're excited about there is um, there's this new tool called Unexplained Wealth Orders that will hopefully be created, uh, UWAs for short, so uh, what they will do uh, is force individuals expected, suspected of buying expensive things with the proceeds of crime and corruption to prove the legitimacy of their funds, um, or they could have their assets confiscated. So what that's doing um, is basically saying to individuals, 
that looks a bit dodgy. Um, can you explain how you came by that money? Um, which is really useful. If that is actually properly enforced, it could be quite a powerful tool for law enforcement. And uh, more to the point, it will probably be something of a deterrent effect for the people coming over here wanting to splash their cash um, in the UK. So um, that's one change, which is, which is quite positive. Um, we'd like to see those UWOs served against um, quite a lot of the properties that we see, which are linked to overseas crime and corruption. Um, the other thing that was mentioned at the summit, so Cameron, as you mentioned, um, you also promised to introduce a public register of overseas companies that own UK properties. Um, it's always a bit of a mouthful, but really that's <laughs> just saying that we, um, we want to name who the actual owners of UK properties are. Um, so at the moment, if you can uh, own a company um, that's based in the British Virgin Islands or the Cayman Islands, that company can own a UK property and no one will know who owns that property. Property. Wow. So um, that yes, it's a it's a major major loophole which we know the corrupt and criminals use, um, and this register would make the ownership of more than most UK properties public. So that's really important for us because uh, transparency really makes it easier to identify deals which are dodgy, and again, it also for kind of is deterrent effect. So that's something that's really, really important. Um, that property register is actually uh, being consulted on right now. That's what I've spent my morning doing, is reading a rather dry government document. Um, so that's encouraging. But I suppose as with all things at the moment, um, there is still the concern that Brexit <sighs> Brexit will uh, cause <laughs> things to uh, get a bit, bit stuffed down in the pipeline. So we're still... Well, basically, we're pleased to see the consultation, but we just very much hope that this legislation actually gets onto the books um, in the next parliamentary session. So, as I said, um, a mixed bag. We've got a few tools that are useful. Um, we've got something on the way, which we're really hopeful about. But, you know, I mean, corrupt money is, is still coming through London and, and no, no summit is going to fix that within a year. So it's, um, it's down to us to keep banging on about it, really. Sure. It's um, I, it's funny that pretty much everybody I interview in this podcast does the sigh before they say the word <laughs> Brexit. Uh, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, it's 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 fascinating hearing about uh, making would making who owns properties transparent. That that would be a deterrent, would it? Because and in fact, I should probably mm. I should probably lead with a slightly more um, uh, overall question, really, of how big is this problem? Because. I, I think I personally have read little bits of the papers. Obviously, I knew, you know, Panama Papers came out last year. That kind of opened our eyes to more tax avoidance and things like that. But the the whole thing of corrupt money, I think a lot of people aren't aware of how big an issue it is um, yep. and how hard it is to find out who the people are that are investing this money and where they're investing it. Yeah, well, yeah, you're right. Um, we think it's a really big problem. I mean, we would say that, but <laughs> we do. Um <laughs> I think the problem is, and I can understand why it's a it's a you know, question that needs to be asked. Is it's, it's really hard to say exactly how much corrupt money is coming to the UK. I mean, first of all, it's a crime, so people aren't going to be terribly open about it. Um, but I suppose in a good fact toyed for everybody. Um, in 2015, the National Crime Agency estimated that at least £100 billion pounds worth of illicit wealth is likely to be laundered through the UK every wow. year. So, um, yeah, we're talking big money. And I think something else to put in context, there was um, uh, a project called the OCCRP, which I encourage everyone to, to look out for. They reported on uh, something they called the Global Laundromat Scheme um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, 
basically they, they discovered that around $740 million of laundered cash from Russia and Moldova was being handled by UK banks over a four-year period. So, you know, that, that was just one scam. Um, so we're talking a lot of money and um, it, it's coming through London from all over the world. And I suppose the thing is, I mean, we've got the city, it's um, it's a trusted, it's established it's an international financial centre and uh, dirty money, illicit cash is coming through the city for exactly the same reasons as, as clean money is. I mean, it's British banks, they can look after your money and our legal framework makes it quite attractive um, for money to come through here because it's a, it's a trusted jurisdiction. Um, so I suppose also going back to your early questions, like secrecy really, really matters um, if for people who want to hide where their money is coming from or where it's going. Um, so that's, that also makes it hard for us to know. Um, two investigations that Global Witness has done recently um, might well, kind of also just points to how much money is going flowing through the city. But two years ago, we revealed that around £147 million worth of property on Baker Street was owned by companies that could be linked to one person called Rakets Aliyev, um, and also that his relations to uh, the Kazakh first family. So um, that was a political dynasty which rules a country with huge inequality, lots of poverty, and, and a terrible, terrible human rights record. So that's kind of the scale of, of which this kind of corruption is happening. And also it kind of points to areas of the world where this money is coming from and um, kind of the, the absolute poverty that they're suffering as well. We also published an expose that showed how the son of the former president of Kyrgyzstan now lives in a, in a £3.5 million mansion in Surrey. Um, he's actually been convicted of corruption in his homeland. Um, so in both of these cases, I mean, we've got really in-depth investigations, but we couldn't say exactly who owns the properties. But um, that's kind of the nature of dealing with anonymous properties that they use. So rambling slightly, but there's a couple of bits there. There's a huge amount of money. Um, there's a lot of secrecy. And a lot of this money is coming from all over the, all over the world um, and uh, through lots of different nefarious means. Wow. Okay. So yeah. it's 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 huge, isn't it? And, and it, there's so many questions to ask you from that. So, um, firstly, I, I suppose um, you said it's coming from all over the world, but the, mm. these areas, um, the the man who has uh, property in in Baker Street and comes from that dynasty, does that mean that his country is then being denied? Would that money otherwise be going into uh, the society in, in in his home? You know, would it be going yeah. into investment? So, so it is actually so. <laughs> being taken away from right. You know, it's stopping equality around the world. It's it's preventing democracy, I suppose, things like that. Absolutely. I mean, this kind of corruption is really devastating. It, for us, um, like based in the UK, it kind of feels victimless. But siphoning money out of kind of state coffers and putting them into private pockets, it does, as you say, undermine democracy. It props up abusive regimes. It keeps developing, developing economies dependent on aid. And it fuels instability and extremism. So, um, you know, ultimately, this money has been stolen from people who need it. So it's not victimless. Um, and as you say, when money goes missing from a state that's coming off, you know, tax revenue, it could be going to schools and healthcare. Um, and so this money going missing has direct consequences for a whole, you know, whole generations, really. And um, I, 
think also the point by bringing it close to home is that when corrupt money comes through here and it's invested in the UK, it's also bad for us. I mean, uh, Transparency International UK have recently published a report which talks about the ripple effect. So um, they found that, uh, talking to an academic, that increasing prices at the top end of the property market does actually have an impact throughout um, uh, the market as a whole. So um, even if you're not lucky enough to be going after those, you know, 3.5 million penthouses, um, you, you're still going to be affected by the distortion at the top. Um, sure. There's also like the national security issue, really. So if you're looking at the conflicts um, in a lot of countries at the moment, whether you're looking at Nigeria, whether you're looking at um, Syria, um, Iran, Iraq, um, well, maybe Iraq more, but um, a lot of the motivations for people joining um, kind of extremist terrorist groups is, is corruption as well. So the instability that um, corruption causes does, does have knock-on effects for us as well. Sure. So what do you mean there where you say a lot of the motivation for them joining extremist groups is corruption? What would that... Well, Why so would that be a motivation? I think there's some really, really good book by a woman called Sarah Chayers called Thieves of States. Um, and she spent a lot of time in Afghanistan. And um, the book is, is kind of told from her perspective of living and working there. And um, I think she talks just about how... Um, for example, the uh, police officers that she knew, um, basically they're not paid enough money by the state. So the, the underlying assumption being that they supplement their income with bribes um, and how that has an effect on people's belief in the in the state and the, in governance um, and kind of belief in, yeah, belief in the state to, to see them see them right and to, to that and have um, a good quality of life. And that spurs people to either... Um, ultimately down the road, maybe join different groups or just basically lie, lie back and let it, let it all happen. So sure. corruption is a motivation for, for insecurity. I mean, it's, it's not something I know a huge deal about, but I really recommend Sarah Chase's book. She's, um, or even like look her up on, online. She's a great speaker. Fantastic. Yeah, I will do. Um, that's God. It's, it's so bleak. So what um, I mean, yeah. also, no, 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 no. It's it's fascinating as well, because I mean, I, you know, I have uh, as someone living in London, I've got reason enough to be angry with the property market. But it's, um, you know, mm. is it largely the UK property market that's facilitating these investments and, and UK banks? I mean, how are, where are these? Where are these corrupt investments being being hidden specifically? You know, or yeah. w- why have they chosen our our property market? Why are they choosing us? Um, for a few reasons. I mean, kind of. Uh, maybe I could just talk you through um, kind of what we typically see is like the life cycle of of mm. how corrupt money gets flown around the system. That might be helpful. So I've talked yeah, a lot already about anonymous companies, but what does that really mean? So. Um, I suppose, imagine that you are a corrupt energy minister from X country. Um, you have the power to sell the rights to a really, really um, lucrative oil block. It's probably worth around, say, £200 million. Um, you could make the choice, do I sell the rights to a legitimate company directly and use that revenue to kind of put straight back into the government, build schools, hospitals, normal, great things like that? Or... Do I create a company somewhere um, in a jurisdiction like the British Virgin Islands um, and use that company to um, basically take the rights to the oil block and sell it on? So if I do this, and especially if I use somewhere like the British Virgin Islands or the Cayman Islands, I know that no one will know that that's my company. All they'll be able to see is the name and the address. Um, That's my company. It's anonymous. And then 
what I'll do next. I'll award the rights of the oil block to myself. Maybe I'll buy them for a nominal amount, say one million pounds, and then I'll sell the oil block on. So I'm pocketing, you know, a rather lovely profit of 190 million pounds or so, which is brilliant. The next thing I want to do is to set myself up the bank account. And I want to do that in London. Um, Now, that should be fairly simple. The company is not associated with my name, but maybe I want to use someone else to set that up for me, someone I trust, um, like a friend, uh, an associate, might be a sister-in-law, someone who can um, be trusted but can't be that directly linked back to me. Or I might just hire someone to do it, someone so-called nominee director. Um, It all sounds quite complicated, but you can actually just hire a lawyer here that will do it for you. Um, So what does London have? to sell. We've got great lawyers, we've got great banks. So that's brilliant. The next point um, is basically I'm fine now. I've got money. I've got it stashed in an anonymous company. Um, I've got a bank account in some of my mate's name. And then what do I want to do? Well, I probably want to invest that money in London. And what, you know, great investment could I do then put that into a London property it's really really excellent I can put all that money in one go into one investment and with very few questions asked you know the value of that property will increase as we well know Um, and if anyone looks at the land registry um, at the moment all it will say is that it's owned by my company my name is nowhere near any of that Um, and once I'm in the UK I can have a really great time I mean the UK is a safe haven in for my money, but it's also a great place for me in the sense that I can hide away from the people I've actually harmed at home through this sale. I can evade law enforcement. I can evade the tax man. Um, and I've also got access to some great schools, uh, some fantastic restaurants um, with some great lawyers around who can protect my um, identity. They can wash my reputation for me, set me up as a, a really you know, stand-up member of the diaspora here. So that's a clear pattern behaviour we see play out time and again. Um, and the reason why London is brilliant is because it's um, it's stable and it's we've got the facilities for it. So um, that, that's what, what it's like out there. Wow. <laughs> whilst, wow. whilst we struggle to get on the digital property market, some people are having a really nice time right now. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I should say if there are any corrupt NG ministers listening to this podcast, uh, you yeah. have just been given how a step-by-step <laughs> guide how to do it um, yeah. if you're interested. And we'll be back with Naomi in a minute. But first. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
Situated by China in East Asia, ruled by Kim Jong Un, a totalitarian, scary North Korea. They won't stop missile testing tensions with the U.S. It's unresting, so stop, we please. North Korea, say it loud when there's people parading. If you don't want nuclear war, then start praying. North Korea, North Korea, North Korea, I see you. Yeah, it's really bad, isn't it? Well, you didn't get it for Syria last week. And funnily enough, Korea also rhymes with Maria. Yeah. The Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Or, once you remove all the bits that really aren't true, North Korea. Which, to be fair, is still an ironic name, considering it's generally been careering all over the place since about 1945. If you've seen the news, you know, that programme on the telly, the one that's the opposite to the olds. Then North Korea, as you'll know, is currently involved in a global changing of the lyrics to Edwin Starr's War, so that they now go, War, hmm, what is it good for? Boosting the popularity of a dictator to his people due to petty showings of power that could ultimately result in the demise of many. Uh, Absolutely no, it doesn't. To be fair, those could also apply to the US. But North Korea is now more of the giant cult of the kind that you'd not find anywhere else outside of a Justin Fletcher live show, where Supreme Leader and condensed Nigel Kennedy, Kim Jong-un, rules with a centralised one-party republic and a lot of rhetoric. Now, I don't know about you, because frankly, I haven't researched you and you've blocked me from stalking all your Facebook pics, but I didn't know a lot about North Korea's history. And it turns out, you know, like a lot of places' history, it is full of ups and downs. Previously under the control of Japan since 1910, Korea was then split into two countries after World War II, with the Soviet Union taking control of the North and the Americans taking the South, beginning the North's animosity towards the US. In 1948, North and South failed to negotiate a reunification process, and so two separate governments were formed, with the DPRK going all commie in the North and the Republic in the South going for a more Yankee style. And then in 1950, North Korea invaded South because they'd obviously been watching US TV and seen how communist regimes in the 50s were meant to operate. And after three years of war, a ceasefire happened, but no treaty was ever signed. And so technically, they're still at war. Yeah, still. Since then, North Korea has resisted attempts to depose of its leaders by both Russia and China and formed huge cults of personality around all its leaders, Kim Il-sung, then Kim Jong-il and now Kim Jong-un, with all its people being taught to worship their great leaders to the extent that in 2012, a 14-year-old schoolgirl drowned when trying to rescue portraits of Jong-il and Il-sung from a flood. Yeah, it really puts things into perspective, right? I mean, I don't even think I'd save my phone from a flood, and it's got loads of pictures on there, including one of Kim Jong-un from a tweet I was going to send that was a little bit rude. Saying that, I suppose you also can't put two full-size portraits in a bowl of rice, can you? That'd be really tricky. They have a crazy amount of military personnel in North Korea, and they have a list of human rights violations that actually places them in their own category, according to many international organisations. I mean, how scary is that? That'd be like being so shit at jazz that they couldn't even class your jazz as free improvisation, which, to be fair in itself, is a breach of human rights. And importantly, for the past week of news, North Korea doesn't really have a lot of money. 
A famine in the 1990s resulted in the deaths of up to 800,000 North Koreans, and it has affected the population growth ever since. Most of its trade is now internal, and it does rely quite largely on China and Russia as well. But overall, North Korea's GDP is only about $40 billion a year, which isn't a lot. And while that is a lot more than I'll ever have in my savings by about $39,999,999, it just doesn't really make it a big player on the global scene. And part of the way that the ruling party, the Workers' Party of Korea, holds everything together in North Korea is by saying that the money they do have needs to go towards military costs to protect the country. And so rationing and shortages are necessary to make sure the people are protected from invasion. With total control over the media, hero worship of its leader and little to no access of the outside world, North Koreans are unlikely to be able to prove that that narrative isn't true. And that attitude and intense nationalism has been continued since 1953. So really, they've never ever stopped being in a state of nearly at war, which is a shame because if they did stop, think about all the good films and museums they'd get out of it. So to prevent threat, North Korea can't afford to build a large-scale defence system and instead they go for the risk of building one-off missiles and just hoping that by firing them, it will intimidate opponents. Kim Babyface knows that North Korea would be decimated in a fight against the US, and he also knows how quickly the US could depose his government. And so by posing the idea that he'd immediately launch a nuclear strike if Trump tried anything, it keeps them at bay. You know, they're like the world's angriest bee. Most things can fuck up a bee, but they're happy to go guns a-blazing with the sting at the risk of losing their lives in order to get in there first. So, you know, we all leave bees alone. Except when we want honey. Or we want a beard of bees for a charity thing. Okay, bees are a terrible analogy for North Korea. Shut up. Now, relations with the US have been pretty tense since World War II, but in 2007, the US, North and South Korea, Japan, China and Russia began talks to denuclearize Korea. In 2008, the US removed North Korea from their terror list, and as recently as 2012, Kim Jong-un allowed nuclear inspectors into the country, and, this is true, Obama sent them a tonne of biscuits in return, because, let's be fair, it does look like biscuits are the sort of thing that would keep Kim Jong-un pretty happy. But then North Korea started up nuclear tests in 2013 again, because if it was a child, it'd only ever leave the naughty step due to the lure of creating more havoc for a second before getting sent back. Yeah, child is a much better analogy, isn't it? Sorry, bees. But the problem is, of course, that now the US has a president who is temperamental and eager to make petty shows of strength just as Kim Jong-un is. And that leaves us at a slightly scary situation where neither of these two crazy leaders want to back down and look weak to their people. Or, in Trump's case, continue to look weak to his people when he remembers that they're there in between golfing trips anyway. And really, after two very quickly ordered bomb strikes in Syria and Afghanistan this week with little planning, it's obvious Trump gets hard for explosions like Michael Bay does for, well, explosions. Although at least in Bay's, only storylines and credibility of the film industry get hurt. US Vice President Mike Pence has said that his country's era of strategic patience with North Korea is over, though he is also a man who's too afraid to be in a room with a woman other than his wife, so I'm not really sure how he'd handle a war. North Korea responded to Pence's statement by saying they will be conducting missile tests on a weekly, monthly and yearly basis. Because they don't care about threats, they're just going to keep ramping up theirs in the hope that they can ward them away. And really, saying weekly, monthly and yearly basis, you don't really need the last two, do you, if you're just going to do the first one? So, the question is, what next, apart from all of us seeing if IKEA do bomb shelters? Well, China have now intervened as it's in their interest to keep things calm, partly for trade, partly due to proximity to North Korea. They've asked for all sides to avoid taking provocative actions that pour oil on the fire, which is the sort of comment that would confuse Trump because he doesn't understand science and cause Kim Jong-un to wonder what all the oil fires would do as a message. The US has a lot of military in South Korea and it is in their interest to keep South Korean citizens safe, so no one wants a war. 
even if they pretend they do. And they especially don't want a nuclear war that could destroy far more than just a dangerous regime. And look, we've all read the road and no one wants to eat a baby. But how do you control two irrational, loudmouthed leaders intent on avoiding truths in order to keep the political system they want in place, from mouthing off about what they can until it gets to war? Well, I can't help but feel that both leaders' irrationality and terrifying want for totalitarian control is the key. With all state-controlled media in North Korea, they could just tell their citizens that they've beaten America and no one would ever know otherwise. And as long as everyone keeps telling Donald Trump that America beat North Korea while feeding him cake at Mar-a-Lago, he's unlikely to ever check otherwise either and will probably even forget that it's a place within about a month. Yes, I'm waiting for a call from the UN any minute now because that is an excellent idea. They're like bees, right? Because they, um... What? Ugh, never mind. And now, back to Naomi. I suppose playing devil's advocate here, if you're saying that there are all these steps uh, along the way where, you know, you, the the company's in a different name, then the bank account, and then the property, like, mm. you know, is it... Uh, and I say playing devil's advocate because I, I know where my morals are, but, the, you know, is it quite hard then for, for property companies and for banks to really know who they're dealing with uh yeah um it is difficult for property um for like estate agents to know who these people are um but uh that doesn't mean they shouldn't try um so kind of banks are regulated as well um there are global european and national anti-money laundering standards they should be following um but our investigations as well show that the profits that UK banks can actually make from handling dirty money kind of really outweigh the sanctions they face for getting caught. Um, and I know for, you know, I'm going to suggest potentially for a few banks um, and for a few individuals, fines are simply thought of as the cost of doing business. Um, and the problem that we see at the moment is that senior executives are just not held personally accountable for when their banks break the rules. Um, and, and that's really the solution for us. Um, individuals need to be held to account or just keep happening over, over and over again um so that's that's one one angle for it and again i mean if we just get rid of anonymous companies that's an incredible incredibly helpful thing to do because knowing who owns a company would also allow banks to check the identity of the real people who ultimately benefit from the accounts they hold um and estate agents would be able to check um yeah so to an extent on when i'm feeling sympathetic i, I do have some empathy for <laughs> bankers and, and real estate agents it's not that easy to do um sure. to find out who owns anonymous companies um but uh yeah they, they, they should be doing what's known as know your customer checks they should be doing due diligence to see if people are politically exposed um if they have known to be associates of people who um, are either in power or if they um, associated with people who got criminal charges against them, um, for example. So there is a lot of information out there um, and they should be doing the checks, um, but sometimes it just doesn't pay to. Sure, of course. I mean, that, that's the other thing I was going to ask, really, is how do you persuade them to get on board with this because i guess it's not particularly in uh either um estates or banks interests to stop getting money in or to stop getting investment in yeah that's right and you know um thinking about uh kind of the level of fines that banks are being being levied against them at the moment um there definitely could be a be a lot higher <laughs> let's just say i mean um i think yeah transparency international has some good stats on this but um it's, it's something ludicrous like uh, estate agents 
you know, the amount of the total number of amount of fines that are given to estate agents is equivalent to some paltry percent of the commission every year. So oh, um, the, the level of the fines isn't isn't really commensurate with the, with the scale of, of harm that some of the banks are facilitating or estate agents for that matter. Yeah. Oh, it's wow. So, um, so obviously, you're part of the not only a global witness, you're part of the No Safe Haven campaign mm-hmm. that's currently running as well. Um, and and tell me a bit about uh, obviously, it encompasses everything that we've already discussed, but tell me a bit about that campaign in particular and what you're, yeah, you know, how you're targeting uh, corruption with that. Sure. Uh, so the No Safe Haven campaign, um, my partner recently told me it sounds quite aggressive, but I think that's a good thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> is um, basically aimed to kind of stop um, places like London, New York, um, kind of these these lovely places all around the world from being used by the corrupt. So we at Global Witness believe that part of the pull of being corrupt is being able to splash your cash elsewhere. So our campaign addresses the role of developed economies and other financial centres to offer the corrupt a place to put their money. So basically, very simply, we want the UK and other financial centres to be close to these people. Um, And what that means is we are campaigning around issues um, uh, around the London property market in particular. Um, So as I mentioned at the start, um, we're currently beavering away and looking through this consultation that the government has got out to enforce transparency um, of companies that own properties in the UK. Um, And we're also starting to work up and to think about um, uh, so-called golden visas, which is um, basically at the moment in the UK and in other jurisdictions around the world, I think there are something between like 30 and 60 of these programs globally, which allow um, very, very rich people to buy residency for an investment. Um, So they can buy either citizenship, so buying passports essentially, or they can buy the rights to to remain um, in in return for maybe some upwards of $300,000 to about £2 million here in the UK. So basically, um, to the very rich um, and to the corrupt, sometimes borders just don't matter. Um, and I kind of want to reduce their ability to, uh, yeah, to, to evade uh, prosecution in their home country and also to, to stop them enjoying, enjoying the wealth that they've stolen. Wow. So so how do you, how do you go about blocking that? Are, are you... Um informing the government at the moment or what's what's the yeah what do you uh, think it's quite yeah how do you do it <laughs> yeah, i know i wish i knew um, <laughs> <laughs> listeners out there no um basically we're very early days this campaign but we think um some of this just revolves around making sure that um, as you alluded to earlier that um there are proper checks done um and that there are some minimum standards of due diligence that uh, border security and border staff do around the world so just to make sure that they um that they're catching these people out before they get the right to reinvent themselves or to to move yeah so early sure. days watch watch this sure well, and i guess also like you said you know the more we can the more it can highlight that it's happening and and the, the you know the more i suppose uh, you can find out who owns what and and who mm. these names are it is it is almost a kind of uh, public shaming is sometimes almost the best yeah. kind of threat isn't it i suppose yeah, yeah. Well, well i hope so also you know find some prison sentences help <laughs> sure of course yeah oh definitely and, and and i mean and i know i, I sort of dread to bring it up because i, I know you sighed about it earlier but with, with this whole brexit like opening mm. you know trying to get global investment is do you think that's going to make it or can make it harder 
Yeah, it remains to be seen, actually. Um, yeah, so we're certainly entering into a period of time where um, conversations about investment and immigration are only going to, yeah, reach <laughs> more complicated um, and, and noisy um, conclusions. But um, the other side of this is that actually, um, as we've seen uh, with a recent uh, vote in the EU Parliament, is that our Without the UK, um, the EU um, might actually be a little bit more progressive on some of these issues. So um, recently, uh, the EU Parliament voted to ensure that all member states have similar um, like public registers of trusts and companies. So on this issue of trust, it's something that the UK has consistently resisted. Um, it doesn't want to go anywhere near making trusts public. Um, it's The government has got to be given some credit for, for being quite progressive on the case of companies, but when it comes to trusts, it's just like, no, we will not go there. So the fact that the EU can now make that progress without the UK um, and actually pull the UK up... Um, uh, with it and to set the global standard um, is, a, is a new dynamic, actually. So um, whilst I'm not too optimistic um, that we will see public registers of companies and trusts adopted all over the, the European Union, nonetheless, um, if the European Union sets a higher bar and if the UK outside of the EU really is competing for um, business and business with integrity, then that, that could be a, a good force, actually. Well, that's yeah, that's that's uh, almost a, a Brexit it's positive. A a, yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> amazing. I think that's the first for this podcast. Brilliant. Um, so uh, now, obviously, uh, I should before I ask you for any other recommendations, um, people can uh, sign up to the Global Witness newsletter and they can donate mm -hmm. specifically to the No Safe Haven campaign, can't they? Online. Oh. Um, although obviously they shouldn't sort of donate through a business or anything otherwise I think that'll get your hackles up with <laughs> um, that's it that's it um, so but apart from uh, yourselves and all the brilliant work you're doing um, what else can listeners uh, do to find out more about it and is there anyone um, either sites or I know you recommended uh, was it Sarah Cho's book earlier but sites mm -hmm. people books anything else that they can get involved with um, or check out if they're keen to find out more well, yeah, so Sarah Chaya's book, Peter State, is excellent. Um, I'd also just um, check out Private Eye, you know. Um, Private Eye have consistently put out some amazing stories um, and snippets on different properties all over the UK, which are owned by anonymous companies, which they've then linked back to various um, dodgy people from, uh, you know, throughout the last 20 years or so. Um, and they've also got a, if you want to do some sleuthing of your own, they have very kindly published a map of all the offshore companies that own properties in the UK. So um, you will be so surprised. Just go onto that, um, the, their map on their website and you can just type in your postcode and I guarantee you'll see two or three um, buildings in your area that you know that are registered yeah. offshore. Do you so, know, I've done that and there's one yeah. at the end of my road. I know. So I've been spying on them when I walk past. <laughs> <laughs> I think actually, I think it was some kind of government building was actually owned by the BVI. So that's a bit of egg on their face there, really. Yeah, oh, wow. so it's really shocking. Yeah. Wow. Brilliant. Um, cool. Well, uh, hopefully everyone can get on that and we can at least sort of post them do polite post-it notes through the door uh, <laughs> who are you <laughs> we'll, we'll who work are it out. you
Big thanks to Naomi at Global Witness for talking with me. And I hope you found that as amazingly fascinating and scary as I did. Um, do check out and read through Global Witness's website at globalwitness.org. And you can find the No Safe Haven campaign in the corruption and money laundering section of the site and donate towards it if you wish. Um, but do read through all of the site and do watch um, Charmaine Gooch's TED Talk on it. Um, all about what they do at Global Witness as it is absolutely fascinating stuff. Um, they're also on Twitter at Global underscore Witness and they're on Facebook too because, well, everyone is. Well, except my nana. Where's the transparency, nana? Bit suspicious. Um, anyway, uh, the book Naomi mentions is Thieves of State by Sarah Chase. That's C-H-E-Y-E-S. And it looks ace and I've added it to my pile of 600 books that I need to read but probably won't. And if you want to see if there are any properties on your street owned by secretive unnamed companies, then check out Private Eye. That's private-i.co.uk forward slash registry. Um, there really is one just six doors down from me owned by a company in Cyprus and bought in 2006. And they've got odd curtains. Hmm. As always, if you have someone that you'd like me to interview or a subject you'd like me to interview someone about, please do let me know via the at Palpolbro Twitter account, the Palpolbro Facebook group, partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com, or, you know, use a dodgy company to buy a place near me and then call the name of the company, the subject or person you'd like me to get an interview for, and it'll scare the shit out of me when I check that website every couple of months. I mean, to be fair, email is probably a lot easier, but, you know, I would give you a lot of points for effort. Not a lot of Brexit fallout this week, apart from the Prime Minister's Easter message suggesting that the country has come together since Brexit. Which I suppose is correct, because with Remainers complaining that it's all going horribly wrong, and Brexiteers complaining because it's not gone horribly wrong in the way that they want it to, we're now all unhappy together as a nation. I suppose there is some solace to take in the fact that post-Article 50 triggering, inflation has stayed pretty much the same. Though this is because food and clothing keeps rising in costs, but it's been offset by falling flight and fuel costs. So basically, you might not be able to afford clothes or grub, but you'll be able to be naked and hungry in a variety of exotic locations across the globe. Along with May's delusional Christian messages, which very much show she doesn't need proof of something to believe it exists, the other stupid Brexit story this week comes from Home Secretary Amber Rudd, who... And I should add, before I get into this, this is a story from The Sun, so there's every chance it's as real as the paper's pretend morals about suspending human arse leakings Kelvin McKenzie, even though they published his fucking racist piece in the first place. So, Amber Rudd has announced a so-called barista visa scheme. Not barristers as in the legal ones, but baristas as in the coffee ones, even though both very much aid sleeplessness for many people. This barista scheme allows people from the EU to come to the UK for two years to work in hospitality, retail or similar work, but they can't claim benefits or stay any longer than the two years that they're given. It's basically saying, hey, why don't you come to an expensive country that doesn't really want you, work in a shit job that pays badly and then fuck off again as we're definitely not letting you stay. I mean, imagine coming here to work in a hospitality job where essentially you're probably going to be telling people very much the same thing as soon as they arrive. Welcome, I've got to leave after two years, these people are shit. You'd at least think a barista visa would include a tall, grande or venti option with, you know, extra bits if you pay more and the constant jeopardy that your name would be spelt completely wrong on the form. But while the upper echelons of society may be frightened about losing those who will serve them coffee, the rest of us are slightly more concerned about the shortfall in staff in many, many other areas that are usually filled by immigrants. And, well, you know, also, whether or not we'll actually have any bloody coffee as World Trade Organisation tariffs on it are really steep. And this week... Can you guess who this week is it that's leaving the UK because of Brexit? Because of Brexit? Can you guess who it is? 
That's right. Well done you at the back with the extremely high-pitched voice and the hat that looks like a bucket. It is the EU Banking Authority and European Medical Agency who employ about a thousand people in London and bring in money from the 40,000 plus visitors they get each year. I mean, sure, it's a bit of an obvious one this week because, of course, uh, the EU Banking Authority and the European Medical Agency had to go because they are EU regulation authorities and we're no longer in the EU. You know, it'd be a bit like doing loads of work for a pal while sitting in a corner of their ex's house while they stare at you angrily. I mean, to be fair, also, we're very unlikely to have much call for regulation when we re-enter the feudal system and, you know, we have to replace our currency with just deciding that whoever wins the knife fight can have the sandwich. Sort of like bees, isn't it? You know, bees. No? No. And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, review on iTunes, donate to the Parpol Bro Patreon or Kofi.com page, shake it, but not like a Polaroid picture, as actually it's not great for its development, and do see if you can try a tiny baked potato. I mean, they're really... They're like real ones, but they're really small. Like, you know, that. Oh, it's incredible um, don't forget you can drop me a line at Bro on Twitter the Parpol Bro group on Facebook or partly political broadcast at gmail.com with your thoughts about everything politics or just in-depth reports about where, when and how you had a tiny petticoat potato um, if I don't see you at a live gig it's probably because you haven't come along or you're great at hiding and in which case partly political broadcast will be back next week as always because really what else would I do with my time you know except eat tiny baked potatoes obviously tiny baked potatoes for the win This week's show was brought to you by the mother of all numbers and some ordinary working letters. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.